Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, April break is the new March break for teachers and students in Ontario. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says the postponement is for the safety of our kids. We'll talk about whether or not that was the right move to make. Given that we are still battling a second wave of COVID-19, nobody wants to hear about the possibility of a third wave, but some healthcare professionals are saying it's inevitable. That's rather scary. And we chat about the latest in the Trump impeachment trial. What's next and what can we expect through the weekend? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to spend a lot of time this morning talking about what's happening here in Ontario with COVID-19 and the government response to it. Because there's an awful lot of controversy about uh, the money that's being spent or not being spent. And we talked about that a little bit on the show yesterday. Uh, we're going to get some clarity on that in just a couple of minutes. But also about the uh, the rollout plan for vaccinations and what might be happening here. And some rather ominous warnings from some healthcare professionals about what's happening. But to kind of set the scene, we'll go back to yesterday at about 2 o'clock when uh, the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, uh, made the announcement about March break not being in March this year. Global's Dave Woodard has the details. Ontario is postponing March break until the week of April 12th. And with that, March break has been effectively punted down the road a month when hopes are that COVID case numbers will be far lower than they are now. Minister Lecce explains they noticed the cases first rise when people congregated in larger numbers. Something we realized over the winter break, and we will not take that risk again with your child, with our staff, with Ontario families. Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. David Williams says he understands the break is important, but wants it to be safe and to keep transmission rates in children down. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, that raises more questions than I think answers uh, right at this point. I want to bring Allison Thompson in. Allison, of course, is a professor of public health services at the University of Toronto. Uh, Allison, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Uh, first and foremost, uh, when the education minister says we're going to postpone March break uh, for the safety of kids, the, the, the first question that comes to mind for an awful lot of people is then why are they going back in the first place? Absolutely. I think this is um, really quite difficult to understand, given the other options that are on the table for dealing with what they're dealing with at the moment. And you're looking ahead to the new variant. You know, this is a this is a strange way to deal with it for a government. It just it boggles the imagination, I, I, you know, because I've talked to the minister about this, about, you know, whether or not they were even going to go back. And we know, we know about the rollout plan. And, uh, you know, some of them, of course, have gone back already, but uh, most of them will, go, will be going back after the, the, the this long weekend that's coming up. Uh, but they basically not only did they say, yes, that's the safest place for them to be. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what the minister said in those days, Allison, uh, about two weeks ago. And now he's saying, well, maybe it's not the safest place. Uh, and, and, you know, we want to keep them home. Um, and you, you couple that with the announcement that, that you were just re- referenced, uh, that we're getting some rather ominous warnings from our healthcare professionals right now about a possible third wave of this. Uh, are, are we heading in the right direction here? Well, I think. I think that, you know, that if you really look at the data and what the data is telling us about this new variant and where the real um, trouble spots in Ontario are, that, you know, canceling March break doesn't make any sense. What would make more sense is if they actually took some different public health measures to address the real concerns that we have with Peel Region um, and, you know, one of those possibilities would be to actually provide much better sick pay for for people like that would be a public health measure that would accomplish what they want 
rather than asking children and burned out teachers to and families to shoulder the responsibility for dealing with this. Well, exactly, and because and, I understand the reaction from teachers, and we've already heard from some of the heads of the unions of those teachers, and I, I don't want people to dismiss that and say, well, those are just teachers that complaining about the government. Uh, they've been working. The teachers have been working right through this. I mean, you know, whether it's online working, whatever, remote lesson, whatever you want to call it, and some classroom stuff as well, uh, and they've gone under an awful lot of stress, and we've heard some of those stories. So that's a factor that the government seems to have ignored. Uh, the other is, as you say, I have yet to see from Dr. Williams or from the Premier or anybody else any evidence that suggests that the school environment is actually part of the problem here. Uh, it, it, the problem here is, 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 is community spread, and you mentioned Peel Region as a great example of that. Uh, you know, we talk about warehousing facilities and transportation facilities and places, and there's a lot of that that it happens in Peel Region uh, through Brampton and, and through the, uh, the, the northern part of, of Metro Toronto, the GTA. Uh, and that's where the problem is, and they don't seem to want to do anything about that. Exactly. And, you know, these, these are the, the hot spots in Ontario are directly correlated to precarious work, work employment mm-hmm. uh, situations where people do not have the luxury of taking a sick day, even though the province is telling them to do that. There's no reciprocity here in place in Ontario for people who we really need them to stay home, but we're not supporting them to do that. And so it's really kind of hard to swallow that that teachers and children and parents who are really, really struggling right now are now being asked to delay a break that they have planned for at work. You know, they've taken the time off work. The children have been looking forward to this. The teachers absolutely need this break for their own mental health, and they're being asked to to take the responsibility for this. So it's really quite mind-boggling to me that, that this is the way that they decided to go. Although, you know, given that they are now gearing up for an election, they have a split caucus, paid sick leave is maybe a bit of a hard sell. But that, that doesn't justify what they've done, I don't think. But if they connect the dots, like you have just done, Allison, and, and you know, we talk about the medical advice that we're getting here about, you know, the way we're not handling this properly, uh, to suggest that, well, that break that, that these teachers and the, and the students, frankly, so desperately need is not going to be till April, uh, which is when they say the third wave might come. I, I, I don't even know if the schools are going to be open. They may be shut down by exactly. then anyway. Exactly. And, you know, I think that, that, you know, when we're comparing harms here, you know, the, the mental health indicators from the science table that's advising the government on COVID-19 are that there is a spike in in the indicators that would that would show that children are really struggling right now. They need a break. Um, so, and you know, never mind the teachers. So, I think that there there are health consequences to delaying a, a break that people have been plan planning for and looking forward to for a whole month. And you know, who knows whether they'll even be able to take it then. You know, so so it's it's really disappointing. The other element to this, too, and I want to get into the mental health aspect of this in the short time that we have left here, is this on again, off again. You're going, you're not going. You're not, you know, I, and that's bad enough for, for adults, for you and my, my, myself, and, and for teachers, obviously, that are involved in, in the education process. But what's this doing to the mental health of the kids to, to suggest that you might be going, you might not be going, you might be safe, it might not be safe? Uh, I mean, it's, got, it's, it's playing with their heads and their emotions, too. Absolutely, and there are many, many children that really, really need that 
predictability and structure in place to be able to thrive in, in terms of mental health. And, and when they are being broadsided by these last-minute decisions, um, you know, it, it's tough for them. You know, they, they can't see their friends right now. They're looking forward to maybe having some more time with their with their parents and being able to get away from the screens and the homework, and, and now they're going to have to wait another month, which for a kid is an eternity. Well, and we've already heard stories, anecdotally, I've heard them anyway from, from listeners on, on our program, uh, about how a lot of kids are struggling with the online learning. It's it's not easy for an awful lot of kids. And, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, the March break is not just, okay, you can put your, your stuff away and let's go down to Florida or something like that. It's it's a mental health break, and, and they're not going to get it when they need it. Exactly. And, and, you know, even university students need that break. We know that. And, and you know, a lot of universities have two uh, week-long breaks now, one in the fall and one in, in mm-hmm. the winter. And so I think that uh, I think that the, even just delaying this is, is going to have some, some negative repercussions. And certainly, anecdotally, I can tell you it has in my head. <laughs> well, if uh, if history's taught us anything, Allison, it's, uh, you know, wait a couple of days and the government will probably change their minds on this. I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm just, I'm very, very concerned about the impact this is going to have. And I was very surprised at the announcement. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, Allison. Thank you so much. Uh, please stay well. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this again very soon. Thank you. You too. Take care. Professor Allison Thompson, of course, uh, Public Health Services at the University of Toronto. Uh, a, a variation on the, the, the same theme, of course, something we touched on yesterday, uh, is government spending on the, uh, the the pandemic and the money that's being allocated. And there seems to be some controversy at Queen's Park about exactly what's going on there. Uh, you know, the opposition parties are saying that the government is holding money back uh, that they should be spending on various elements of, of dealing with this pandemic. Uh, the government themselves, in a statement they released earlier this week, said, no, 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 we're, we've got all that money allocated. We're doing our job, and, and the money's going where it's supposed to be. Uh, John Stapleton is a social policy researcher and consultant, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. John, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your, your time today. You're welcome. I'm glad to speak. Well, let's talk a little bit about this because, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm trying to get the numbers straight here. We, we heard what the, the finance minister had to say yesterday that, that everything is fine here, nothing to see here, no problem here. But the opposition parties are very, very concerned about the fact that there's an awful lot of federal money that the government seems to be holding back on. What's, what's your read on what you see, John? Well, what I saw is in last uh, fall's budget, the Rod Phillips budget told us that um, – that extra spending of about $824 million in the social services envelope, um, that they'd be spending that extra money. But uh, when you do a sharper analysis of it, you see that the, uh, that the federal government gave the provincial government an, an extra amount of $182 million in something called the Canada Social Transfer. But then even more importantly, what happened is that our social assistance caseloads, in other words, people on what call Ontario Works, which we normally think of as welfare, and a program called ODSP, which we think of as disability, those caseloads have gone down quite precipitously uh, at a time when you normally think they were going up. And uh, some of the money uh, that they were saving in those uh, caseloads drop was, was footnoted. So they counted the uh, money that they were spending, but they only footnoted the savings. And that was, uh, and I think that's where some of the confusion came in. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about that because when, when the Ontario Works numbers go down, and as you say, that seems very contrary to the fact that we're in an economic crisis right now because of the pandemic. Uh, my guess is a lot of the reason for that is because some of the people that might have used that program are now relying on the federal programs instead. Well, there's really two reasons. Uh, the first is the reason that you just uh, gave. They start to rely on the federal programs and therefore they don't qualify for for social assistance anymore. If you get one, you're likely not going to get the other. Um, but the second reason is we have no newcomers coming in. And we and the usual immigration that would come to an area like southern Ontario uh, has not occurred at all. That's really stopped. And a big part of social assistance caseloads from uh, you know from one year to the next is newcomers who are just coming in and getting on their feet. And so when that stops happening, uh, then those caseloads are down. The other element to this, too, I want to talk about something that, that the finance minister did admit to, and that, of course, is the fact that, yes, there is some money being held back for what they call contingencies. Uh, and I understand that. Governments need to have a little bit of something in there for, for something that can happen, just as we should, you know, in case the roof in your house starts to leak or something, uh, for a rainy day. <laughs> but, John, this is the rainy day. I mean, you know, we should be spending everything we can to try to do things like, you know, increase the, 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 the level of care and long-term care facilities, you know, more infrastructure for schools, you know, to deal with COVID. We're not spending what we should be spending. The government's saying, don't worry about that. We got this covered. I, I, I don't share that confidence, and I don't think a lot of Ontarians do. Yeah, and, and nor do I. I mean, when you have a finance minister that tell us that he just saved in his, uh, in his own calculation $427 million in social assistance payments. And this is at the same time where the, uh, the provincial government over the last two years has not given any increase at all. Now, we've had low inflation, but we've had some inflation, and these are the people who are not getting these benefits. And at the same time, people with disabilities, who, for example, who are immune compromised, shouldn't be going out, should be staying home and staying safe. Uh, certainly need a bit of that extra money. So last year they did give out a couple of uh, $100 tranches to uh, people who were on social assistance, and they and they paid that out of the money they saved uh, when people were going on these other programs. But uh, they simply stopped doing that, and now uh, you know at, at the end of March uh, they they've got a they're saying that uh, another tranche of people are gonna are gonna be taken off social assistance. And that's six months in advance of the CRB money running out. So we're really watching that closely to see. uh, And like you say, I mean, the rainy day is here. So if you're saving it for a rainy day, you should be spending it. Well, exactly. And and I guess one of the more contentious items, maybe the most contentious right now, is this issue about paid sick days for people that may think they have uh, the you know positive tests, they, they, they're not feeling well, stay home. That's what everybody says. But if you stay home, you don't get paid. Uh, and the province is refusing to to acknowledge this. I mean, they eliminated the, the sick days that the previous uh, Liberal government, the Wynn government, had guaranteed. They just took those off the books altogether. This is a Ministry of Labor responsibility, which means it's a provincial responsibility, not a federal responsibility. Yet the the, the Ford government says it, this is not an issue, but it is an issue, and it's probably one of the most important issues when it comes to trying to stop the spread of the virus. Well, especially when you have about twenty percent of all our workers uh, working at minimum wage, uh, which is twenty seven thousand a year. If you have it full time, full year, but how many have it full time, full year? And uh, you know, those people living paycheck to paycheck, and their contention is, of course, that the federal government. Uh, uh, is responsible for sick days, and uh, 
that that's the nature of our country, right? I mean, who's yeah. responsible? We're both responsible, and this is a this is a time for what we call uh, where cooperative federalism ought to be the rule and not the exception. Well, it's it's a frustrating experience, and I'm, I'm I'm glad that people like yourself are speaking out about this and 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 shining the light on this because you know when we start looking for solutions here, uh, the government's got to step up here, uh, and you know the fact that they're still sitting on a pile of money and then saying we don't have any money to do this, this, and this is 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 mind-boggling, really. Uh, John, thank you so much for the time today. Let's stay in touch and uh, see just how the government responds to this. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Great having you on, John Stapleton, of course, social policy researcher and consultant. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So there's going to be a debate about whether or not the March break should be canceled. I know that's what the government's already said they're going to do. March break is not March break anymore. It's going to be April break, at least this year anyway, because of the pandemic. And uh, the education minister, uh, Stephen Lecce, made his his case for that yesterday. And uh, it, it is what it is. I, I don't think it's the right move, but it's going to happen. But the other story that we need to take into consideration, because everything about this is context, right, is what else is going on here? And what about the numbers uh, with the virus itself? You know, Mr. Lecce, the minister yesterday said that he wanted to make sure that kids and teachers were going to be safe. The numbers tell a quite different story here because uh, we're very concerned about this. Now, I know the vaccine is there and it's coming, and not as fast as we want, but it is coming. Uh, and the lockdown is ending after this long weekend, which is coming up. And some people are, are taking from that to say, well, you know what? Maybe we've got this thing under control. Well, that's not the case at all by any stretch of the imagination. The medical experts are now telling us that here in Ontario, we could be in for a third wave, which would be worse, they tell us, than even the first two. And, and that's quite contrary to what a lot of people were thinking. Uh, yesterday, uh, Dr. Uh, Brown, who Dr. Steiny Brown, that is, uh, who has uh, been one of the spokespersons for this uh, uh, the government process here, but he's been very outspoken and very candid in his comments, uh, was asked basically, uh, is, is this a, a real concern for us? And this is what he had to say. Uh, am I missing something here, or is this presentation actually predicting a disaster? No, I don't think you're missing anything. Uh, The cases will likely rise given the variance of concern. Uh, The need to keep that R down is really, really critical. Uh, But there are a number of things that need to be weighed in making these decisions. Uh, Very frank and very candid in his comments here, essentially saying if we keep doing what we're doing here, uh, we could be in for a lot of trouble here. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Dr. Alon Vaisman, an infectious disease and uh, infection control physician at the University Health Network. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad you could be with us here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, your your comments about this, and we weren't even talking about a possible third wave. I think a lot of us were under the impression, probably mistakenly, I guess, Doctor, that that you know we we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Now we're starting to hear from a number of of your colleagues that are suggesting that no, we're 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 not as safe as we thought we were here in Ontario. What, what's what's your read on this? Yeah, I think it all depends on what the next steps are by the government. If we continue to have the restrictions in place for the next few weeks or months, then a third wave will become less likely. But if things are lifted very quickly, then that becomes very likely. One, because it's um, we've seen that pattern before in Ontario, and two, because the variants of concern are now likely to increase the rates of transmission. So that, that's where the main concern comes in now, is that there's more transmission with these viruses that are uh, circulating, coming in from other countries that are now going to be the predominant strains here in Ontario in probably in a matter of six to eight weeks. 
Well, and the, the here and now, though, is, is as we've been talking about in the program over the last couple of days, uh, the government has taken steps. I mean, you know, the kids are going back to school from in most of the province anyway, uh, starting on Tuesday of next week. Uh, the lockdown is going to be eased, you know, uh, uh, the things are going to start opening up, not in all areas, but I mean, the GTA is still going to be problematic. But the government seems oblivious to, to, to what you and other uh, doctors are telling us about this the third wave and the potential because of these new strains of the virus. Uh, I'm not so sure that they've taken that into consideration when they're developing policy like this. Yeah, exactly. I think that uh, this time around, uh, people feel reassured maybe that things were take, were uh, handled and now the cases are coming down. They might be reassured by their experience in the spring where you know, in the summertime, things were very low. Things went, a lot of things went back to normal, but not completely. And so the expectation perhaps now from some of those individuals making the decisions is that will happen again this time too. But what's different this time is these uh, strains, which could be otherwise upwards of a third to two thirds more transmissible than the previous strains, being, uh, being more likely to cause disease. And so with a system that's already been overburdened on the healthcare side, this is just going to add to that that accumulated stress. Well, maybe you could shed some light on that for us, Doctor, about the, when you say the stress on the health care system, uh, because an awful lot of the people that are dismissive of this are simply saying, look, it, I've never had COVID. And none of my friends have ever had COVID. This is this is all overblown. And besides, we've got a vaccine, so this is going to be over probably by the, the spring, maybe the summer at the latest. Uh, and the, the experts are telling us uh, it's... It, may get worse a lot worse before it gets better uh and and the healthcare system i think is one of the things that we don't talk enough about uh about the impact this is having on hospitals on on the people that work in those hospitals and the number of available beds in case we do get a, a, another wave right uh we saw that we could accommodate this time around but that was only because the restrictions were put in place and then just kind of in the nick of time we didn't have to go into these very drastic decisions about who gets care and who doesn't although there was very significant stresses that required transfers of patients from various cities in Ontario just to be able to provide that high level of care, the intensive care. So if you if this happens, a, uh, you know, a third time, not only do we risk going into this realm of extremely high cases and high mortality, but we also burden a system that's already been essentially running on fumes for the last 12 months. The healthcare workers, the resources, the finances, everything has been burdened on the healthcare side. Um, you know, the mental health of frontline staff as well for the last 12 months. So anything we can do to try to prevent that will save lives. One other thing I just pointed out is that, you know, the thinking last year was that after the lockdown eases, we, you know, there is no, it was essentially a bridge to nowhere because there was no vaccination. There was no hope mm-hmm. of herd immunity at that time. But now it's different. It's not a bridge to nowhere. The lockdown is a bridge to vaccination. That is the major difference to recognize this time which means that if we can hold off on lifting the restrictions for just a little while longer, perhaps until March or April when we at least see the vaccination rates up, then we will very we will have a far less likelihood of actually developing that third wave. So that's where the that's where all of this concern arises is that we have we have a tool now to prevent that third wave uh, and if we just wait a while longer we can use that tool. 
And, and listen, I'm I'm all for the idea of, of you know we need to get the economy back, and and I feel for the the people that are are not working now, uh, and the small businesses that are hurting. I, I I don't think anybody is 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 turning their back on that, and and we need to do something about that. But it just seems as as when experts such as yourself and and so many others, or even in the last four or five days, have said no, 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 this is not time to open the windows and doors, and and let's go out there. Uh, this is the time where we have to wait. Uh, the government seems to, to to be ignoring that, and it's it's not like what they can do a year ago, doctor. When they say, "Hey, we didn't see this coming," uh, first of all, they see it coming. You and your colleagues see it coming, and you've warned the government about this, and they're not responding. Yeah, uh, it's great to see that there's a science table that presented their data yesterday. They have, of course, the eye, the um, the ear of the government. They present this data for all Ontarians to see, for all Ontarians to judge. So there is the transmiss the uh, transparency with the data, with the the recommendations, all of these things that are coming out. So hopefully the government looks at this and Ontarians look at it and see the situation. And again, the, it is a hard pill to swallow to extend lockdowns for sure. And as you said, it has a severe effect on people's well-being, people's financial stability. But again, the difference this time is is the vaccination and extending that lockdown a little bit longer to at least forget that uh, get the vaccines in. And as was described in the presentation yesterday, to get the R number down to 0.7, which was what they approximate would be the value that you need to at least contain the new variant. If we can get vaccines into people's arms and bring that R down, then that's when we can start lifting the restrictions. When the governments tell us that they're listening to the medical experts and and you know, we'll take them at their word, I guess, although I've got some serious concerns about that. Uh, and the medical experts set those levels, as you say, these these are the benchmarks. If we hit this, we can do this. We can open this up. We can do that. From the beginning of this, Doctor, and I'm going back almost, to, I guess, to about a year or so ago when the first lockdown happened in March, uh, we've never hit those benchmarks that the medical experts have told us. We've come close, and they said, yeah, it's close enough. And it hasn't been, because we've seen a spike shirt thereafter, uh, which makes me very concerned about what's going to be happening over the next 12, 14 to 20 days. Yeah, it's an interesting observation about whether how the government has responded to the various data that's come out. I think it's fair enough to say that in the beginning, about 12 months ago, there was a very little understanding of, of how the pandemic would work and how to bring it down. And initially, there was a lot of experience from other countries before Canada about how that was successfully done. I think the main area concern ended up being not so much about the opening because we saw that it was generally pretty well done when you look at the numbers in May, June, July. But it was when the cases started rising again in the fall. That's when I think um, a lot of people were critical of the government about how slow they were to respond, especially in the late fall, to prevent the peak from reaching where it was in July, in January. Even though the trajectory was very slow, the numbers were steadily rising, and so it was very clear that something had to be done. So in terms of listening to the numbers, listening to the science, I think that the trigger of knowing when to pull the uh, the trigger about lockdown, that's, I think, where the where some of the criticism has come. Well, especially because, I mean, in those days when we would miss those marks and those benchmarks and we'd see the repercussions of it, uh, the rationale the, the government usually gave us, whether it was this government or the federal government or any other provincial government, I guess, was, well, you know, there's no playbook for this. You know, we've never gone through this before. Well, we have now. I mean, we've we've had 12 months of this, and we've seen, uh, you know, the first lockdown, now the second lockdown, and, and the, now potentially a third wave. Uh, it, it brings back that old saying about, you know, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We already know that we've tried this before, and it didn't really work. So here we go again. 
Right, right. And not only, yeah, the experience of Canada, but we see the experience of so many other nations, so many other jurisdictions, the United States and Europe and East Asia, everywhere that's had experience with these waves, how to deal with them. So everything's out there. Everyone understands what needs to be done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's certainly the possibility for people to make the right decision. And I'd also like to stress that a third wave is, is not inevitable as long as the right decisions are made over the next few weeks. As long as things are kept stable and with the targets that were outlined by the science table yesterday, then a third wave doesn't have to be inevitable. You don't have to have another peak of cases again. And this is what I think I find disturbing, and I think a lot of people as well find disturbing, is we'll get one media conference from, you know, in this case, the Premier and, and Dr. Williams and, and others, and, and hours later, uh, as you say, the science table, Dr. Brown and, and, and that group that are working on this, and they're basically, they're not beholden to any government. They're just giving you the data that they've accumulated, and they're telling a much different story. And, and it makes me wonder uh, that if the government says they are listening to the medical experts, uh, it, who are they listening to? You know, if there's 20 doctors that are they're advising them right now, and if 19 of them say don't do this, and one does, and they decide to do it anyway, uh, that's that's not consensus. So we really don't know what that process is, and I guess that's one of the things that we really need to find out about. Yeah, I agree that any decision made on the provincial level about uh, these things that affect so many people simultaneously should have transparency. When they speak about the data or the science, and they said we make this decision or that decision. It's important for them to cite what exactly it is that they are looking at that prompted them to make a decision. For example, if you're signing to open things up later in February or, or March, and they say, well, it's because of this or that, well, then they should be citing that and should be describing what the rationale is. And um, I think it's important for that dialogue to be very open and for them to acknowledge the data that's coming out of the official science table. Not only that, but there's a lot of academic work being done across the world as we said, that uh, demonstrates how things can be safely reopened. So, uh, yeah, I absolutely agree that transparency is critical for Ontarians to trust the process. Because none of the stuff that, uh, that Dr. Brown or, or, or some of his colleagues talked about yesterday were presented the day before by the Premier. In other words, they, they, it's, it's as if that stuff didn't exist or they ignored it, whatever the case might be. And, and I think your point's well taken here, Doctor. Nobody's saying don't reopen. Uh, but look at let's do this in a in a guarded fashion. Uh, you know we can't just say okay you can do this you can do this you can do this. We have to take our experiences from places like Israel and New Zealand and and Australia and places that have gone through this. You know there's the best advice of course is from somebody who's already been through this. And of course those countries, especially in 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 the southern part, of course in, in New Zealand and Australia, they're they're a season ahead of us because they've already gone through their winter and their summer and they've they've gone through another spring and they can say here's what worked and here's what didn't work. And I'm wondering whether or not our, our government officials are actually paying attention to that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an important point to stress, uh, that um, the public, many people in the public, of course, do not agree with lockdowns or restrictions because, uh, for various reasons, including their own financial well-being, the well-being of their families. So it's important for things to be done in a very safe manner and to explain to the public why it is we're doing the things we're doing and how we're going to get out of this safely. And uh, having people understand that and have people with you know, expectations on how this is going to be better is very critical. Otherwise, people look at the situation and they see this as just an inevitable cycle of cases and coming down, going up, and without an understanding that there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel here and there is a, there is a rationale for all these decisions being made. 
Yeah, but that light at the end of the tunnel, if, 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 you know, if that's vaccinations, I mean, I think we've also been told uh, by folks like you in the medical field that, that this is not the, 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 the be all and end all. I mean, a vaccination doesn't mean that you're, you, you know, you're never going to get the virus. It's still going to be around for the next little while. So we need to be cautious. Let me, let me put it in this context, if I could. Uh, if, if when we finish our conversation here, uh, you know, the premier calls you and said, look, doctor, I just heard you on, on Kelly's show. What would you advise me to do? What would you tell him? Uh, it's a, <laughs> it's a tough question, but <laughs> I think, uh, looking at a consensus of experts from Ontario who come together and made recommendations or, can make recommendations around this, I think that would be the best option for the Premier, is to look carefully on what things can be lifted and what things can't be, and be very, very cautious this time around, perhaps at a trajectory that is slower than what was done in the spring uh, lifting of the restrictions. So it's not to say that things can't be done, but I would say, firstly, to wait until the are down and the target that has been described here and other places, and then secondly, to very carefully and slowly lift those those restrictions. Uh, and with uh, a constant reviewing of the data so that we know that we're moving in the right direction. And I would emphasize the message um, to give to the public that, again, this is a bridge to vaccination, is that the restrictions have been tough on people, no doubt, and we need to be sympathetic to that. But the vaccination is going to change the game completely. And uh, that data has been shown already in Israel and other countries where vaccination has risen and has been uh, effective at decreasing mortality, decreasing ICU admissions. That is a game changer. And you're right, things are not going to back going to back to normal, that's for sure. But it's a huge thing to be able to say to the public that we're going to reduce mortality. That's a huge benefit to the situation. Well, I hope they were listening at Queen's Park. Uh, great advice. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for this and for your perspective on this. Greatly appreciated. Thank you for having me. Take care. Dr. Alon Weissman, of course, uh, from the uh, University Health Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. All eyes in Washington again today for another day of impeachment hearings. Impeachment uh, part two, of course, uh, for Donald J. Trump. Uh, impeachment managers from the U.S. House of Representatives, they being the Democrats, of course, have concluded their arguments in the impeachment trial, uh, claiming the U.S. Capitol riot was a high crime that was instigated by Donald Trump. Global's Reggie Cicchini's got the details there. Using less time than allotted, Democrats say Donald Trump is guilty of a high crime and misdemeanor for pushing a lie about election fraud that had deadly consequences. Donald Trump told these insurrectionists to come to the Capitol and stop the steal. Impeachment managers made their pitch to a room heavily divided and a Republican party that still stands loyal to their former leader, pushing back on the process, but also the claims that Trump's words were improper. Words like fight and win and take back our country now satisfy the legal standard for incitement. Then every political candidate in the country, all the way down to dog catcher, is about to be prosecuted. Trump's defense on Friday will argue his speech is protected and that blame goes to the rioters. They're confident the GOP conference will stand by Trump and acquit him in a vote that could come as early as Saturday. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. And it's going to be interesting to see just how that happens. We're getting reporting now that uh, uh, the lawyers, uh, the Trump lawyers who uh, made their opening statements the other day, uh, have incensed the uh, former president. He may not, he, I think he's fired them. I mean, that's one of the stories we're hearing. Uh, anyway, try to get some uh, rationale and there's some reasoning in what's going on. Please to welcome back to the program uh, Rob Goodman. Uh, uh, he's a professor, of course, with the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Professor, as always, thank you for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. 
A story yesterday, CNN was reporting that uh, that uh, Senators Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, and Mike Lee, who are all staunch uh, Donald Trump supporters, actually met with the Trump defense team. So I guess so much for being impartial jurors during this whole thing, but I guess that really shouldn't surprise us. But is is there a sense of inevitability here that it doesn't really matter what the Trump team says here because the, the votes to, to impeach him just aren't there? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um I actually think it's really telling that uh, a number of the Republican senators who are acting as jurors in this case also met with the defense team. And you know, also at the same time, you, you could think about them as, as co-conspirators, as people who've also pushed this election fraud lie that, that led to violence. I think this is a really important point. No, honestly, it doesn't bother me that much uh, as an observer or, or as a political scientist watching members of the impeachment jury uh, coordinating with the defense because, you know, impeachment is a political trial. Uh, it's not a trial under the law. Uh, and I think uh, it's not equivalent to a criminal case. Um, it, it's a case about whether uh, President Trump is fit to remain eligible to be elected president again. And I think in that case, you have to look at the sort of defense that his uh, team is going to move on um, over the uh, remainder of the trial. You know, the idea that his words uh, and his months-long campaign to promote this myth of election fraud are protected speech under the First Amendment. It may very well be that what he said is protected speech. But I don't think that's really the issue here. The issue here is whether, uh, as a political matter, uh, he incited violence and he tried to undermine a democratic election. And actually, I, I think that by acting in a coordinated political manner, by meeting with his defense team and acting as if they're part of the political defense that President Trump is putting up, uh, Republican senators like Ted Cruz are really demonstrating that point. Uh, this is not like a criminal trial at all, and we shouldn't use standards uh, that would be appropriate in a criminal trial. It, it very much was and was designed to be, I think, by the framers of the Constitution, uh, a political judgment. And, and I think a lot of people get lost, even some of the you know professional commentators that we see on, on the networks uh, that are giving their play-by-play as, as this unfolds in front of us over the last couple of days anyway. Uh, you know, the assertion that, well, he didn't break any laws, that's, that's really not... In, that's, that's inconsequential. That's a moot point, isn't it? This is not about law-breaking. As you say, this is not a criminal trial. This is, this is about abusing, or the allegedly anyway, abusing the political process and inciting. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I'm going to credit a lawyer friend of mine who I think made a very good point about this. There, there are plenty of instances of protected speech under the First Amendment that could also be politically very, very troubling. You, you could imagine the president tweeting out... Uh, hey, Russia, uh, Alaska's uh, up for grabs. Go ahead and take it. Send your troops over there. We're going to clear out. You know, if you posted that on Twitter and actually followed through on that, um, it could all be legal and by the book and technically um, not a criminal act. But, I mean, ceding territory to, uh, to a foreign nation like that uh, or being paid a bribe for it or something like that could very much uh, be an impeachable act. And I, I think that's the kind of standard we're looking at here, that what counts as a high crime under the Constitution for the purposes of impeachment uh, is always a political judgment to be made by politicians and senators acting in a political capacity. And I think what President Trump did has to be looked at in that light as part of waging a consistent campaign over months and months, only culminating on January 6th, that is about undermining uh, free and fair democratic elections. And I think if Congress doesn't act on that threat, uh, there is no indication um, that that threat is going to disappear. I think we'll very much uh, see Trump or Trumpist figures in the Republican Party empowered to continue this again but should we be surprised by this really professor i mean you know this well there have been four impeachments i guess two of them on donald trump but they have always been 
a, a partisan vote just about each and every time so why why would this be any different and because it's coming along the same lines now you know uh, granted of course a few republicans a handful of republican senators have come on side and said yeah he, he needs to go but clearly not enough this is always if it's a political decision it's always going to be a politically partisan decision isn't it yeah i think you're right about that and i think that it's not going to be surprising that you know even though perhaps the majority of the senate might vote to uh um disqualify donald trump from running again uh, he's certainly not going to get uh, the two-thirds standard that would actually uh, lead to disqualification. So I think it's important to think about this, that when when the framers wrote about impeachment, wrote the Constitution, uh, they didn't imagine that the Senate and Congress as a whole would be partisan. They were writing before uh, political parties had really come on the scene. So they really expected uh, the people in the Senate to make a decision that was political, but maybe not on the basis of their partisan interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, this is a major expectation uh, that didn't um, that wasn't fulfilled. Uh, you know, quite soon after the Constitution was written. So I think the function of impeachment has changed in some regards. I think uh, for the foreseeable future, I could not imagine a president being removed by the Senate because the Senate simply doesn't lead to those kind of majorities. Uh, and partisans are, for the most part, going to vote to defend their co-partisan of the presidents from their party. I think what impeachment can do is move public opinion over time and can demonstrate a strong case about just how deeply uh, certain authoritarian elements in the Republican Party have threatened uh, democracy in America. And in that regard, you know, one way in which I'd criticize uh, the Democratic House managers is not using up all of their time, not calling witnesses, not making the most thorough demonstration possible uh, of just how deeply uh, the results of the election were threatened by not just President Trump, but by actual Republican senators, by members of the jury, that this was a really coordinated action that goes to the highest levels of the opposition party. I think that's really frightening to think about um, but as far as I know, that's what the facts say. And I think that the Democrats really could have done more in the way of calling witnesses uh, and, and really making that case for public opinion. Because I think you're right that impeachments at this point in the political development of the U.S. aren't about securing that two-thirds majority, because that's just frankly never going to happen. Uh, they're about moving public opinion in a serious way. Which begs the question, are, are, are the Democrats doing this not to impeach Trump because they understand the numbers just aren't there, but is this is this the first volley, I guess, uh, for the 2022 uh, midterm elections? Yeah, I think so, but I think only if it's connected to the bigger themes uh, yeah. in American politics. I think uh, democracy, elections, free and fair elections, and so on are really important concepts, mm-hmm. but they're also abstract concepts. And I think if Democrats are wise politically, what they want to do is connect the growing authoritarian of the Republic, authoritarianism of the Republican Party uh, to the institutions in American life that are designed not to empower majorities that the Republicans defend, like the unequal representation of the Senate, uh, like restrictions on voting rights, like gerrymandering in the House that prevents people from getting equal and fair representation. And then they need to make the case that as a result of these things, um, government doesn't deliver on widely popular uh, ideas that would be supported by majorities. You know, think about the polling on uh, robust um, stimulus or COVID relief. Um, I, I've seen splits saying like 80 percent uh, of the population uh, or a similarly high number is in favor of a really robust, uh, strong and high spending relief uh, to stimulate the economy. But if there's any kind of relief that passes through, it's just going to squeak through the Senate um, because of the power of the filibuster because of the way that uh, the Senate is not an institution that reflects the majority of the population. So I think what Democrats need to do, and this is a more difficult case to make, but I think they can make it, is connect the dots between 
the anti-majority rule factions in the Republican Party, between the way our institutions don't empower majorities and the results of that, which mean the government doesn't deliver on what the majority of people want in a way that impact their lives. And impeachment is a part of that, but it can't be the only thing. It has to be connected to something that's really material and felt and real in people's everyday lives. Well, this uh, could, as they say, wind up as early as this weekend, so we'll have to follow this. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time and for your perspective on this. Greatly appreciated. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Take care. That's uh, Professor Ron Goodman, of course, uh, from uh, Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.